Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor's Radio Network, WTOM, and uh, Chapel Hill, and Carborough. Thank you for listening and joining us wherever you are listening point. You didn't have to, but we appreciate you checking in. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us, press 1 to get on the line. And, of course, uh, we thank you. If you have questions, uh, hit us up on Pat Nation at Pat Nation 2 at Twitter. I'm going to bring in my next guest. And, you know, if you didn't know, uh, May is Mental Illness Month. And um, one of the concerns and the discussions I've had on uh, another broadcast and with uh, this guest coming on um, is the trauma uh, that goes on with our people and our communities that leads to a lot of different issues, whether we're kids or even adults. Um, but I, it's, I'm, I'm happy to bring in, uh, I guess, Scenario O'Conjure, and she is a psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma Clinicians um, of Color in Oklahoma City, uh, Oklahoma. And first of all, I thank you for coming on for the first time, and I'm glad to have you uh, on the show. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me, and it's a real pleasure to be on the show. Absolutely. So I want to uh, touch on one area we were talking about on the air before, and that was the fact that when you look at policing in black community, we certainly don't want to say all police are bad police, but those bad apples that commit these heinous crimes and murders, I call them, uh, is very traumatic. It's very traumatic for our kids, very traumatic mm-hmm. for our families, and there are long-lasting issues and ramifications that, that go into that um, when you look at this. So talk about what happens or what should happen when starting with kids, when they either witness it or are looking at their their parents because you know kids are very they're like sponges they're gonna they're gonna look right. and they're gonna learn from adults and people adults and parents around them so right what is the the trauma that goes into seeing someone killed or hearing about someone killed of color based on the color of their skin. Okay. I mean, that is a very broad question. And depending on the age group, <laughs> I'm going to start with, um, depending on the age group, I'm going to start with young children and how they interpret it. As a parent or a caregiver, you know, being able to 
talk and communicate with that child to kind of get an, a sense or an idea of what they know, what they've heard, is a first step because, you know, as kids they may um, have saw something or heard something or had someone tell them something that may not necessarily be true. So by you being the adult and at least assessing where they're at in terms of maturity, uh, age level, um, you know, things of that nature there really helps to uh, kickstart the conversation. So be able, being able to identify what they see and, you know, counteract any type of uh, misinformation received kind of helps. It really does. Um, also, and this is helpful for not just a child but an adult too, you know, identify the feelings you're having as you're watching something like a, a police killing take place. You know, being able to realize that, okay, I'm feeling a certain kind of way. I'm not wrong for feeling that way, but um, if this is causing me issues, then I need to be able to address it. Some people take mental health days, and I think that a lot of us uh, are moving or gravitating towards realizing the importance of mental health days when we as a community have kind of seen such tragedies play out, court dates, uh, hearings, you know, shootings that are broadcasted every day, you know, 24-7. Part of that health care or self-care, rather, means turning off the news when it becomes too much or the radio or the Internet, whatever it may be as a source of media, being able to realize that this is too much for me, okay? This is too much and I'm having an emotional reaction. Now, to be able to define what an emotional reaction is, you need to really be able to assess how you're looking, how this is affecting your daily functioning. Are you finding yourself being, you know, angry at the, all the time? Are you finding yourself being uh, weepy-eyed or crying all the time? Maybe you feel like, you know, there's no justice and there's no, no reason to continue to keep going. Or maybe it's anger of, of the injustices that you've seen. Being able to identify those are actually the first step in finding a healthy way to cope, okay? By doing that, you know, being able to find like-minded people such as yourself to vent to um, helps you because, you know, we work in a multicultural world, meaning that you're not just working, or maybe maybe you are, but you're not working around all the same ethnicity or the same race. So being able to, to have those conversations vent realize that not everyone falls under the same guise just because you've seen one group of people or person act this way doesn't mean that all officers or all white people are uh, fall under that same guise. You know, be able to think about the people that you know in your life who have shown you different and not try to generalize, um, you know, based off your emotions, if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, and. So just to follow up, what is a mental illness, I mean, a, a mental day, if you will, a mental day, it, it kind of elaborate on that. And then when you, when you, if you're socially conscious, not only socially conscious, but uh, you're active, an activist, let's say. So because you're an activist, whether you're watching it on TV or on Facebook or wherever you're watching it, you're in tune to. So how do you tune that, turn that down and still be yourself in your activism uh, and, and keep your sanity? Sure. 
I'll start with your first question. Uh, Mental health day is something that um, is very similar to a sick day. You know, people, when they're not feeling well uh, physically, they take off. Well, what we're trying to do now is place physical health in the same category, the same important category as a mental health. So a mental health day is just like a sick day, and you're like this is something that is federally regulated, so you cannot get fired because you take a mental health day. In fact, it's, it's encouraged, especially when you're witnessing or you're experiencing, uh, whether that be bereavement or, you know, an incident take place, or maybe you're overworked and you're tired and you just need a break. That's what we call a mental health day. It falls under the category of a sick day. Um, and, you know, I recommend using those as, as long as you have that time to use. Uh, some organizations or some jobs actually, uh, even if you run out, find a way to substitute that. But if you have a question about that, talk to your uh, human resource person who can kind of advise you in the way of uh, going about that. But, yes, mental health days are just as important as a physical sick day. Um, I usually tell my clients you cannot pour from an empty mug. So when you find yourself feeling depleted or overly anxious or even angry, take a mental health day. Um, Your body and your mind will thank you, as well as your job maybe even. Um, So that's the one question on that. And the second question um, can you repeat that again? Well, I was just saying that, you know, if you're an activist, you're in tune. It's just like, it's almost like your job. Like you're, you know, it's Black Lives Matter, so you're in it every day. You're emailing, mm-hmm. looking at the holistic things that are going on, you're watching it on TV. How do you tone that down and still keep yourself as an activist? Hmm. You know, it's a very tough job to have um, because, again, you're kind of thrust and you're passionate about activism, and that's the reason why you're engaged, right? But even as an activist, you should be mindful and aware of how you're feeling, what's going on with your body. Are you noticing that you're tense all the time? Are you noticing that you're crying all the time? Are you noticing that the people that don't look like you, you're starting to have negative thoughts or emotions about. When it happens that way, it would be no different than any other person, and self-included. Find ways in a healthy way to vent. You know, some people, uh, for me personally, I enjoy nature. Some people enjoy, you know, art or talking to someone else. That's another thing to find people that are like-minded like you who have perhaps even a support group that you can discuss your issue, use it as a venting process, and then leave those emotions at the door, being able to leave those emotions at the door and work on what you need to do and focus on. But you can't do that if you're emotionally upset, if you're noticing that you are, your vigilance has increased. Are you having uh, sleeping issues? Are you find yourself, um, you know, depressed or anxious all the time? If you're finding yourself using drugs or alcohol, these are signs and symptoms that your mental health is taking a decline and that you should do something about it. And if, if all things, if you don't have that, then, you know, I encourage therapy. You know, some people turn to religion. It's a healthy, positive 
outlet to utilize. That is, yeah, it should be practiced. And some people would say, no, uh, you know, if you're a licensed psychotherapist, if you have a therapist, so maybe you have the inside uh, of school. You know what I mean? It's almost like if, if you're in the school systems, right? So if oh, I'm sorry, L.A., do you mind this, repeating that again? Because your phone was breaking up, so I couldn't hear clearly. I, I, I was saying that some people would say that, um, you know. L.A., I can barely hear you again. It sounds like you're in a tunnel. Okay, one second. We're going to go ahead and switch over here. Okay, just want to make sure you can hear me better there. Is that I better? can. I can. That is so much better. Okay. Thank you. Okay, no worries. Um, we were ha- having some echoes in the background, so I switched uh, gears. Um, technical stuff, of course, happens. Um, I was okay. saying that some people would say because you're a therapist that you only you know the signs, but, you know, it's maybe, by an advocate, maybe easier for you to go to a, your own therapist or your own friend to, to vent and do those things as opposed to somebody not in the field understanding or knowing the signs um, mm-hmm. in terms of depression and anything else that would be traumatic that would lead mm-hmm. to some forms of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and for that, I would say that you don't have to be a therapist to realize that your body is going through changes, right? Your feelings are going are going through changes. You know, if you have someone that's close to you, maybe they know a close person, they can see what's going on. I think that we're all capable of realizing that something is wrong. I don't like feeling this way. You know, um, if it's going on for a month now, you know, noticing those changes or having someone bring that up to you is really important in terms of uh, making sure that you take care of your mental health. Again, um, I know in in the black community, uh, the subject of mental health is really difficult to approach because uh, for so many reasons, um, we don't seek therapists. Maybe it's because you don't have them in your neighborhood. Maybe because you feel like the cost of therapy may be too high. Maybe because it's a strong mistrust about it. However, in order for an out, and this is you know a, a thought of minds and something that's echoed, in order for us as a race, as a community, as a as a uh, group in order to make sure that we are heard and acknowledged and felt we have to start we have to start individually with ourselves we have to start there and then continue the conversation um we spend so much time talking about physical health that you cannot have one without the other if your mental health is in decline then guess what's going to happen next your physical health is in decline so being able to have those conversations and become aware even even if you're faced with challenges, being able to acknowledge research and read on these things uh, helps um, to, to broaden your horizons on what you can do. So, again, it's a tiring task. Being a, an advocate is a tiring job. You have to, and I encourage you to be able to realize, hey, I need to take a break, or what is going on with me differently that is affecting the work I do. You can always tell when there's a mental health issue because your level of functioning, your daily, day, daily day-to-day functioning changes. It shifts where you may have been a happy, jolly person uh, at one minute. 
something may have happened that triggered it, that led to the opposite of that. Now you're sad for days and days on end. If you know that's not like you, typically, that's a sign of mental health decline. Once we can get to the point where we're saying that my mental health is just as important as my physical health, then we can move on on those greater subject matters that matter to us on a state level, community level, nationally. Um, But we can't do that if we are personally in a state of uh, disarray and not understanding what's going on with our mental health. You're so right about that. I I get emails and texts from people about, did you see this or did you hear this? And it was either something, police brutality, something political, because we Mm -hmm. touch on everything. And I, I got to turn it off. Like, I can't I can't do it all the time. I don't want to yeah. be on, you know, uh, go too personal. But, I mean, it's just, it's really, you're right. You have to turn some of this negativity stuff off in order mm-hmm. to be able to, to be able to come back and be refreshed because you will get burnt out. If you're just joining yeah. us, we're talking with, we're talking with Samaria. O'Conjure, of course, she is a licensed psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma uh, Clinicians of Color in Oklahoma City. We're going to get to what they do um, on a, on a regular basis, and I really appreciate uh, what you guys uh, do. I want to ask you about okay. as you relate to your welcome. I, I want to ask you about. As it relates to police brutality or criminal justice, I don't like to call it, I should say criminal injustice reform, uh, and racism and things of that nature, things that affect uh, black and brown communities, does trust, remember the Tuskegee experiment, you know, some of us don't want to take the COVID, you know, get the vaccine, does mm-hmm. play into the fact that we can't have uh, the serenity. We can't be mentally stable because we're so concerned about getting burned or getting killed in some cases. Does trust play into our mental stress when it comes to those mm-hmm. factors and those, those issues? Trust definitely plays a role. Um, African-Americans have for centuries uh, dealt with mistrust of, uh, of whites, uh, maybe even mistrust of each other in regards to um, freedoms, uh, um, support, things of that nature there. So that has kind of been passed on generationally, and I'm not making this up. You know, research shows that when trauma of a a profound effect takes place, that becomes embedded in your DNA, and it passes down. So that that mistrust, uh, feelings of, uh, you know, I can't uh, trust that particular person, so therefore I'm not going to, to deal with them, is realistic. It's not just realistic, but we have facts behind it. There's been experiments, the Tuskegee experiments that have gone on uh, that aids our mistrust. There's been providers that we've had to work with who are not culturally competent, uh, who have mislabeled and given wrong diagnosis or maybe just even disregard. Um, that has gone on for centuries. And as a medical uh, field, you know, they really need to to do a better job with that. Um, There's reasons for the mistrust. 
there are reasons for that, and they are very, very valid. I would never say to a person, well, you know, that's not true. Um, you have that right. But at the same time, I encourage my clients to, okay, now we know this has happened. How can we move forward? What can we do? Because, again, our health is more pressing and important. We have to get to a level in which there is someone that we can trust or some people that we can go to. So, again, I encourage um, venting, um, maybe social groups that help you to process your anger. Some people use the church as a source of, uh, you know, venting or prayer, and that's all. That's very great and very important to do. Um, in the past, there's kind of been, speaking on religion a little bit, there's kind of been a divide between the church and therapy. Um, I'm happy to report that even that is now changing in which the pastors and religious leaders are seeing that, you know, mental health is still valid and there's things that I'm not equipped necessarily or maybe even um, the Bible doesn't speak clearly on that our clients, I mean not our clients, but our parishioners can be better off with a therapist. So some churches have even adapted having a therapist on board in the church, a Christian therapist or whatever religion, uh, to help navigate that, um, which is great, which is great. I lost my train of thought, by the way. <laughs> so That's okay. I, I, I do want to ask you what your organization is uh, doing um, in terms of convincing our people, because, you know, it's, it's not it's not one of those things where we want to discuss i mean we're so conditioned about in a way where if you have any vice any negative vice in your your life just stop doing it. stop drinking stop smoking stop mm-hmm. whatever you're doing just stop it we're black yeah. we handle everything yeah. we're tough we've been we've been conditioned to be tough since the middle passage, right? So what can we do to to have those conversations? We don't even have the conversations of race. That's a whole other subject. But what can we do? Because like you said, if you're depressed, do you really want to get up and exercise? How are you going to be physical if you're depressed? So, right. but, but we don't want to talk about it. It's like it's just right. a shameful thing. How do we fix mm-hmm. that? We fix that by normalizing it. That means being able to have conversations with the people that we are in close contact with, starting with your family. We we have to realize that, uh, and this is not necessarily just an opinion, but the truth is that um, black people are 20% more likely to experience serious mental health issues, such as anxiety or depression disorder. Um, we have generationally been labeled as strong and, you know, you're powerful and, and great. Yes, we are, but at the same time, we are human. And I think once you human humanize uh, mental health and realize that stigma plays a big role in us not seeking mental health treatment because we tell ourselves that we're, we're strong and don't cry or you're not a man if you do this or you seek therapy, You know, if we learn how to get rid of those negative thinking patterns, because they are, it's nothing wrong with saying that I need help. You know, again, if 
we've been traumatic or traumatized throughout our for centuries now, realizing that there is no particular prayer that will get that away. You need treatment. If you want to advance, then treatment in the form of whether it be talk therapy or even with some medications that are out there to help is important. Again, normalizing the importance of mental health, just like we do physical health, is key to that. And that's some of the things that um, my initiative, Oklahoma Clinicians of Color, does on a regular basis. I came up with the idea uh, back in 2018 because I couldn't find, even though there were people who were asking, um, you know, I'm black and I, I, I'm looking for a therapist that looks like me, I could not find any therapist like me. I knew they existed, but I collectively, where are they? So I started the group initially just to be able to identify black therapists. So as a client, if you were in need, being able to connect the individual with a therapist that looks like them. Because what we do know from research is that um, shared experience, uh, being able to have someone that looks like you helps tremendously in a therapeutic process. It helps a person to feel like I can connect with you because you understand me and therefore I can talk. The one good thing about today's time is I believe that we're more open to the idea of therapy. Um, you know, you see movie stars and um, music stars talk about their experiences and how therapy has helped them. Maybe some medications have helped them. And that has kind of lowered our um, our stigma about it because, again, it's normalized. So you want to start that conversation at home if it's possible. And it helps being educated on the subject of mental health. Talk about it. Well, Jay-Z spoke about his uh, anxiety or, dis- uh, or depression. What does anxiety disorder look like? What does depression look like? You know, and am I experiencing that? Am I having the same symptoms? Am I sad, unusually sad all the time? Am I crying all the time? Am I nervous to the point that, you know, I'm sweating in my shoes if I have to talk? You know, and it's just been lasting a long time. I think once we get over the idea again that we are crazy or that you are less than a person or weak because you choose to turn towards therapy or another guys to help you, um, then we will be able to normalize it. But as a black community, our biggest hurdle is stigma. Again, no one wants people look at mental illness and they think about it as this is the the nut or the crazy person who yells at the top of their lungs or, you know, and wow hair and, and you know, has to be hospitalized. You know, those images used to be broadcasted on TV and we're really working to try to, to eliminate that because Mental illness in itself has a range. It has a variety. You know, there's functional people that struggle with mental illness. Uh, There's a spectrum of mental illness in itself where it ranges from, you know, mental wellness, having a great day, to mental illness where you're, you're finding yourself struggling with having a good day or being motivated to get up every day. That's important. Uh, That's important you, because the gay you, go ahead, I'm sorry. You 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 said a a, a mouthful of, of things there. Um <laughs> you know, number one, you, you know, the this this 
sense of shame that we put upon ourselves and our family. I have uh, people who suffer with um, some issues and they're on on meds, and I know family members that you know belittle that situation. And and mm. it, it sounds like it's more of the the education of those who yeah. aim not to have those mental illnesses. Um, to, to get them to understand that, you know, people go through things. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, you, you're right. I, I mentioned on the other broadcast we were on is that, you know, as a father, you know, and uh, uh, everything is sort of uh, taught, if you will, and so we're taught yeah. to be strong. And, you know, I go to the extreme of, uh, you know, telling my sons that they can't cry, but, you know, they understand that, you know, it's a responsibility as a man in terms of the position in the, the home, and there's some sense of toughness mm-hmm. there. Um, so yeah. I struggle as a parent, full disclosure, making sure I'm saying the right thing. Maybe not mental yeah. illness, but just making sure I'm saying the right thing so they could be who they are. So mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, uh, scenario, it, it seems like that's really where it is. That's where it starts. Like if we allow ourselves, our families to be who they are, then maybe the stigmas would somewhat go away along with the education of, of mental illness. Correct. Correct. You start at home, then you can, again, do, you can go on to better things. But if you do not take care of your mental health first, then you cannot take care of your physical health, which means you can't go out and advocate uh, our work even, our being relationships. Again, it's really important because as kids, we internalize messages that our parents give us. So therefore, if we internalize uh, things that we hear about mental wellness or even mental illness, if you're telling your kid, you know, well, big boys don't cry and you're a strong woman, you know, uh, Imagine what they grow up believing, and then once they realize or something happens and they're not able to process because they they haven't been taught emotional intelligence or emotional wellness, then we have mental health crisis. What, What do you do when you're told, don't you cry? You know, you're less than a man if you cry. You're, you're crazy. It's, the taboo of mental health and mental illness in the black community is structured around shame and embarrassment. And again, I I say that until we take care of our mental health, we are not equipped emotionally, psychologically to take on the societal ills that we have as a community. Yeah. And the thing is too, you know, you hear people saying, you know, you know, pray it away and things of that nature. And and I would gather that if someone um, struggles or is, you know, they identify in their sexuality and that's being shame, then that leads Mm -hmm. to depression and maybe even you would know suicidal and and things of that nature, which which if you, if you want to harm yourself, that takes on, you know, a a whole different mindset. Um, let let me let me ask you this because I want I got someone that sent an email, um, and I'll ask you the question. I think it's a really good question. 
what do you say to your colleagues who are European, if you will, or just, you know, Caucasian in, in itself that says that it's racist for you to have this, your organization to identify with people that look like you and sound like you and had the same experiences culturally. Hello? Yep, Hello? I think it's racist. Can you hear me? Okay, there we go. We had lost uh, contact. Okay. It went completely blank. But I, I, don't I, believe, know. I believe I heard a summary of what you said. What I, what, what I would tell my colleagues are someone who commented that Oklahoma clinicians of color, uh, because we focus on minority mental health, is, is racist. Or even and even focus in on the fact that people want to identify you 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 identify with black people because you're black or vice versa in terms of you know because you look like us so I can treat you better because I look like you I have the same or similar experiences culturally. Yeah, that is a, a huge reason why some people seek out therapists of color therapists that look like them because there's a compatibility factor. Um, However, you know, our roads are totally different. You know, just if you took a path or you grew up in a different way of life than mine, it doesn't necessarily mean that I understand everything. As therapists, we work off the guise of empathy as well as research and study and practice. So we're not basing, and in being able to relate this to a client is important, but we don't base our uh, therapy, our services, based off of what you look like and because we have a connection. It makes the role easier to do because we have that connection. But, again, being able to help the person identify and hone in on what it is that they need from therapy, what they would like to work on within themselves, is key. And for anyone, if any non-minority had that issue, then I'd love to talk to them again. Uh, black Americans are 20% less likely to receive the type of mental health care that they need. Uh, they are knowledgeable, perhaps, of where to get it, um, perhaps unknowledgeable of where or um, how to access it. Um, we were just talking about teens, but our suicide rate amongst teens has increased because they feel like they don't have an outlet to talk or or, or misunderstood or maybe even told uh, that they should not talk about it. Um, And that bleeds over in a lot of other ways. And even with the LGBT, there's a lot of intersexuality that goes on between black people, whether it be black people in class, black people in uh, politics, black people, and sexuality, you know, we, we compass a lot, so therefore we have our own set of mental health issues that need to be addressed. Um, even if you are not a black therapist, being able to be culturally aware, cultural competency, helps you to relate to a, a black client or a client of color. Um, so we're educational in that sense, too. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Sonaria O'Conjur. Of course, she is the uh, life and psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma Clinicians of Color in Oklahoma City. Here on the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network and WCOM uh, and IBM. Um, you touched on where I wanted to go. And 
you know, African Americans, Black Americans have, have made so many heroic and uh, historical first and 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 strides to make this country better. You can go on George Washington Carver, Dorothy Hyde, and all the civil rights uh, folks, the Marcus Garvey's, all these people um, that have uh, paved the way, uh, who fought for social, racial, and economical mm-hmm. justice. Um, and we continue to do that. Yes. But the fight for mental illness justice, if you will, or fighting to have those those avenues, uh, those uh, resources, seems to be lacking. And again, it, to me, it goes back to the awareness part, the fact that it's where we are in a stigma. Uh, but we suffer, like you said, from anxiety and depression, two big ones there. Uh, and we're traumatized by the things that we go through just in our communities. So mm-hmm. what if if your organization um, you're doing and some of the things we could do uh, both from a community standpoint and individual standpoint in terms of, uh, of making the social justice or the mental justice, I, I call it, uh, to make sure that we have mental awareness, il- mental illness awareness, and the resources to help. Because like you said, the numbers in our communities are enormously more high, if you will, mm-hmm. and, than the, the other communities. So what can we do? What is your organization doing to, to push, put pressure on Congress and put pressure in these, these cities and states and municipalities to make sure that we have those resources, those avenues uh, to, to get some help with our mental um, illnesses? Yeah, that's a great question, L.A. Um, yeah, it's a big heal because uh, funding is not uh, readily available for mental health, mental illness. It really is one of the first things that's taken from government um, when when they need money, you know, and it's another reason why the call to defund the police is, is growing um, because of the fact that Usually the government gives a lot of money to the police departments and things of that nature there. Well, if things were evenly distributed, then that money could go into mental health care and medical care, uh, which, you know, these are entities that affect our communities. So um, being able to advocate for the importance of that with our governor leaders is something that is really important and pressing to me and it's something that I uh, have aligned myself with several groups, uh, NAMI being one of those, a National Alliance of Mental Illness, um, in which I'm a board member, uh, to advocate on behalf of the importance of receiving mental health treatment for those who need it. And again, mental health encompasses, uh, you know, just having a bad day, you know, bad thoughts for a prolonged period to people with severe persistent mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar, you know, things of that nature there. So there's a gambit in between that. All of it still requires the need for funding. And unfortunately within our society, um, again, like I mentioned, those are the first to go because they do not see, unfortunately, a stigma 
continues to surround where we think as a nation, as a society, that, you know, it's mental illness, you can, you know, just walk it off, pray it off. Uh, it's not important, and that's farther from the truth. You know, one of the things uh, that is historic with our trauma, if you will, is in our community is being disadvantaged is that, uh, or, or leading to these mental illnesses. I mean, it, you talked about it historically, enslavement, oppression, colonialism, mm-hmm. I mean, racism, sex. Yes. yes. Talk about the fact that, and I'm sure you see with some of your your patients that uh, just everyday life, uh, even if it's a um, a short term, I I like to call it uh, trauma, uh, leads to a lot of the the issues that can build and 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 be very traumatic and very fatal in some cases. I mean, if you lose your job or if you lose your house, you're homeless, you're jobless you know, a death in a family, um, death in a family uh, obviously uh, being more significant, but losing your job and losing your home or or any of those type of things all seem to lead to um, the issues that you're talking about. So it's not always just um, the stuff on brutality and stuff. It could be something as, like I said, that, and some people handle losing their job or their home in the worst kind of way, shooting somebody mm-hmm. or killing themselves. So talk about those right. those everyday things that, that life just kind of happens and it can lead to some some really severe uh, issues. Yeah, it's true, true. There's a lot of things that happen. Life is hard, <laughs> you know, and we deal with the sets of challenges every day uh, that we are blessed to see life. Um, but, again, mental wellness involves being aware of how to cope with those traumas, those events that take that take place in our everyday life, um, which is another reason why I strongly push for therapy because it teaches us those valuable skills to cope with the traumatic things, uh, even less than traumatic, or, you know, things that cause anxiety, such as public speaking. It helps us to cope with that. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of things. Again, it starts with your acknowledgement of what has happened and how your body is responding to it. You know, I tense up when I'm dealing with perhaps uh, an, an incident at work um, in which I I am not sure of myself, right? So I'm noticing that I'm having some anxiety about the idea and the thought of this upcoming project or something that I have to work on. Um, I'm noticing that this isn't the first time that I've had it. I kind of have a history of doing this. I'm aware of perhaps maybe some things that I would tell. Well, mom also struggled with her anxiety. She was nervous all the time or, um, you know, had difficulties coping well or, or whatever, and you turn to drugs or alcohol, you know, to help get rid of the jitters, you know. So, again, being able to pinpoint where we started, how that came to be, and realizing at the end that this has been problematic um, are the first keys. And then the next is being able to normalize perhaps any exaggerations or stigmas uh, in, in pertaining to mental illness and the black community, uh, being able to overcome those fears to realize that your health is more of importance um, 
your mental health is more important and that the fact that everything else seems to follow after that. Um, if you have a decline in your mental health, then most likely you're going to have a decline in your physical health too. As we know, blood pressure tends to rise when we're overly anxious. Um, you know, we have um, poor health conditions when our mental health condition doesn't align with that. So that's kind of the first step. We're going to have issues. We're going to have different things that play out in our life. But how are you coping with that? If you notice that your whole day has kind of been awash because of one thing that happened or maybe multiple things that happened and you're not necessarily coping with it well, it's a struggle to get out of bed. You know, it's a struggle. You find yourself blowing up or becoming angry all the time because maybe what you're seeing or what you're dealing with, um, you have to make some choices. And one of the things that I encourage my clients is you have you have the skill set, the power, you have everything that you need in order to be successful. It's just you utilizing those things. So it's it's a fascinating process. It really is. Um, did that I answer is, your question? Is that a sign of, yeah, is that a sign of depression? Uh, is depression at the forefront of, of some of the things you just mentioned, the struggle, get out of bed? things make you angry, things make you cry. What, mm-hmm. if, I mean, if you assign a depression or could it be something that was always there and maybe coming to the surface? Hmm. Yeah, I would go ahead and say that that's definitely a sign of depression. Um, but, again, everything has an origin. It doesn't just necessarily start from day one. No, it, there's there's an origin. Um, a lot of things that we've seen or have encountered has been maybe traumatic or stressful. Um, maybe you find yourself as a kid remembering how, how scary it was to, to take that test. You've internalized it now and then thinking that all tests are going to be hard. So therefore, you're having a physical reaction about it. You're noticing that you're your head's starting to sweat, you feel flush, your stomach feels jittery. You know, you've internalized tests to be something that is stressful, and, and maybe that continuation of thought and about that carries on into your adulthood. And now you notice that every time it comes to perhaps something that you have to perform um, or do or something to prove yourself, you're now struggling with anxiety. Um, that is a problem. That is a problem, and it's worthy of talking to your doctor or even a therapist about. Yeah, for maybe some cool. tips that can uh, help. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, two quick questions. Uh, Mark uh, asked if you are becoming codependent on some substance, say he said if you're studying for college, you know, some college uh, um, test and you need sort of some kind of upper speed to stay awake, can that lead to something deadly? And then um, Jane had said that um, what about the discrepancy on how uh, mental illness is treated in the black community as opposed to white community? She said white people on drugs go to the Betty Ford Clinic uh, black people on drugs go to jail. So I'll start with the first question, and I'll try to remember the information you told me. Uh, the use of drugs in itself doesn't lead to dependency, but I think being aware of the genetic component 
meaning that how biologically or even um, genetically it's affected past family members uh, helps us to become aware of how it could possibly, uh, because we have a, um, what's the word I'm trying to use, we have a genetic component uh, that means that we could be or most likely could become addicted to that. Now, drug use in itself is one area. Drug use is saying that I used a drug, but I am capable of still functioning, right? Addiction or dependency occurs when you realize or you find out and you're doing things that are different from your your day-to-day life. That's where dependency becomes a problem because you can no longer function without this drug. And, again, if you have some preexisting conditions such as family who's been dependent or uh, maybe even addictive personality or addictive spirit, meaning that you find yourself uh, throwing yourself into uh, everything you do, you know, say a workaholic or a foodaholic, uh, it's the same thing with alcohol or drug addiction too. So, yeah, be careful of that. A lot of people um, are in denial about their use. No, I can quit any any time. And the truth is is that um, when when that dependency hits, and it could hit whether it be the first use or even, um, you know, the 99th use, when it hits, it's hard and extremely difficult to quit that habit. And it usually involves interventions of, of such, whether that be drug treatment centers, or maybe even medication to help. So the second question uh, involved uh, the differences, yes. The double standards. Yes, the double Mm -hmm. standards, yeah. Yeah, you're totally right on that. You're totally right, and I see that playing out in the opioid addiction or even the war on drugs uh, that really plagued our communities back in the 80s and the 90s and how now the opioids uh, are kind of the new addiction scene and how because, you know, there's a lot of white people that deal with it, there's a lot of more mental health, there's more uh, broadcasting, more spotlight on that medication. Um, Thank goodness there's um, a voice behind that. There's people that are voicing out and speaking and advocating, like, hey, you guys did this. Uh, Where's our, our, uh, you know, acknowledgement? President Obama was really good at being able to overturn uh, long-term prison sentence due to marijuana possession. And um, we need more things like that. Um, Instead of placing our people that are addicted or have mental health issues in jail, we need to focus more on recovery. We need to focus more on treatment. So, that is definitely a, a push. That is definitely something that people see, and uh, it's very discouraging to notice there is a difference. But I encourage that anyone who struggles with uh, an addiction do not, you know, fear. Uh, please do get treatment for that. Uh, Orlando asks, which is worse, an enabler? Or someone who has an addiction who can lead to, to uh, some illness or those who shame those with the illness? That's the question. Yeah, all of it's bad. <laughs> um, the enabler 
Yeah, all of it's that, to be honest. The enabler is is definitely a person that um, in families of codependency, um, you know, not necessarily forces the drug on them or forces the negative relationship on a person. But in order to ease um, the distraughtness that takes place when that person doesn't have perhaps the drug, um, they will say, go here, go ahead and use or turn a blind eye to just to to get peace uh, in the household. And that's detrimental, too. It really is, and it's not a good form of relationship. Um, what was the second part of of that, the second and third? Nadler and someone who someone who would shame the person if they have some form of illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they both are equally uh, bad in my book. Uh, to shame people means, you know, creates uh, resistance in being honest. And, again, there's so many ills that take place uh, from drug use to even suicide that occurs when we're shamed. You know, there's a lack of support there. So that person who shames or the community that shames um, creates a barrier from that person actually getting help. Veronica, but this is you getting the question now. Veronica um, had asked, um, "Is a physical ther a physical illness or or issue lead to mental illness?" In other words, she said in parentheses, "Say a sex addiction." Yes, the answer to that uh, is definitely yes. We've seen. Um, let's see here, for example, and I'll use uh, diabetes. You know, for people that have had diabetes or any type of physical health condition, the idea and thought that they're not able to function uh, the way they normally do creates depression. Depression in itself uh, creates uh, the, you know, the, lead, the need or the idea that they're unable or not worthy um, and can lead to perhaps even the use of drugs or even committing suicide at the, the larger scale there. But, yes, sex addiction is one of those areas where it's, it's very controversial. Uh, some people believe that, you know, you can't be addicted to sex. Um, I personally fall under that guise that you can. If, if there's something that permeates your everyday being, you cannot live without. It's part of your functioning now. That has become an addiction whether that be a food, I, I can't function or I can't think, I can't operate without this, um, that's an addiction. And so, unfortunately, there are some people who are addicted to sex. Um, the underlining uh, issue between addiction is the need, uh, the craving for acceptance, um, if that makes sense. So, therefore, yeah. they do this, uh, this act, whether that be food, sex, or drugs, because they have not dealt with the hurt or the anger or the anxiety that underlying emotion enough. So it kind yeah. of transposes uh, I mean, to a bigger area. Right, and they talk about pornography, and, you know, I'm no doctor. I play one at the Holiday Inn, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the fact is I would think if, if, uh, if you're addicted in that way, and I can see – a man thinking, well, you know, again, tough guy. If no, no addiction, sex is not an addiction, whatever, uh, for most part. But I mean, 
people being promiscuous can lead to some some serious medical issues, you know, yes. and uh, dangers, yeah. you know, the sexual diseases and transmission diseases. So uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that. Um, before you go, uh, I did get one last question, so I want you to answer that, and then I want you to really uh, uh, talk more about your organization. We'll have you on again. Um, the question is signs. What are some of the signs that people who really care about those who may have either a dependency or an illness, what are some of the signs they should look like? And I know that's a broad question, but, you know, in our community, it's anxiety, it's depression, it's it's some of those other bipolar disease. You know, Alzheimer's is something that deteriorates, but, you know, but what are some of the signs that people can look for in our communities and, um, in, in terms of helping if they know those those signs? All right. So I'm, I'm going to individualize it and talk about just the, the person. If there is a person that you are concerned uh, about in regards to their mental health, then, again, educating yourself before you approach them. But just like you would with anyone, being able to talk in a safe uh, place, you know, a place where it's intimate and you and that person is alone to express that, you know, you have some concerns um, is important because you you can't have the talk. And I say it as the talk because it's very important and mental health in itself is a very difficult subject to approach for a lot of people and especially the black community. So being able to have an intimate setting in which you and that person are alone to discuss um, what you've noticed. Now, some of the signs to, to keep aware for uh, aware about that maybe have caught your eye is social withdrawal, being able to, you know, withdraw from your interactions that that person usually has with other people. You know, they're not hanging out with their friends anymore, you know, um, they're having difficulties functioning, you know, whether that be at school or at work. You know, they're um, not getting their work done. You know, they're typically known as the person who gives 110%, but now they're given 30% or maybe not even showing up at all. Um, dramatic changes such as that, you know, they're not eating. They're barely getting any sleep. Um, while it doesn't mean that they have a mental health problem, it could be a sign of what is to come. Again, if you're not sleeping and you're not eating well, then that becomes a physical issue where you're not awake to to do things, to travel or whatever have you. So being able to um, be aware of what you're seeing helps kind of guide your conversation when you're having it with them of approaching. Um, and then instead of we have a tendency to use you statements, you aren't doing this or you did that, it, people quickly become defensive when we're using you. So I encourage the use of I statements. Talk about what you've noticed. Talk about how you feel. Uh, talk about your thoughts and your concerns, even more importantly, and that gets rid of the shame uh, aspect of it. Okay? Um I want you to be able to think also about resources. If you're going to have this important talk with your loved one about, you know, them needing mental health treatment, have resources on hand with you when you have that talk, 
you know, um, a good recommendation that I usually do is, you know, uh, NAMI.com, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Um, but there are several other resources, some, something that's in your community that the person can go to or a person that they can talk to uh, about this concern, whether that be a therapist or a social support group. And so those before are you go, things. please do, yeah, mm-hmm. talk about your organization again, how people can can contact you and follow you. Uh, and certainly we, we will definitely hopefully be um, – more than uh, many, many more discussions like this to come. Sure, sure, sure. So, again, I'm with the Oklahoma Clinicians of Color. Uh, We are a resource-based group in which we educate the community on the importance of mental, minority mental health and wellness as well as illness. Um, You know, I, I really want our community to be aware and educated of, again, how you approach what is mental illness um, you know, research and, and data on our, our growth and our struggles and, you know, how we can continue to overcome. Um, it's also a support hub for therapists of color um, in which we, um, you know, share kind of a think tank in which we share ideas and, and uh, resources and referrals um, so with that knowledge in those individuals, I uh, also connect them with people in the community that are in need of mental health services. And we've been doing that since 2018. So if you would like to get in touch with me. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, 2018. So if you'd like to get in touch with me, um, you can email us at Oklahoma Clinicians of Color uh, at gmail.com. Um, um, even if you're not in the Oklahoma City area and you would like information of perhaps maybe therapists in your area, I can uh, help you to research that information. Um, so, yeah, that's my contact information. Well, 2018, I was going to say, and, and counting in what you're doing. And, um, and listen, this is, I mean, it's, May is Mental Illness Month, but every month should be Mental Illness Month, especially as it relates to our community and the advocacy mm-hmm. of of that, and and the fact that, like I said, we we've made some strides with what you said in terms of conversations and and the advocates of of those um, who are working towards that, but we got a long way to go, uh, and um, uh, this helps yeah. me. Personally, you know, uh, right. along with others, in terms of uh, making sure that I'm conscious enough to to not just with my kids, but just in in general, in terms of families and people in general, to make sure that the understanding and the sensitivity, right, um, uh-huh. is there for us to to understand. But um, so, I really appreciate your time this evening. God yeah. bless. Uh, we will have you, you on with this and some other topics because you are very not only educated in your, your profession, well-versed, and certainly um, we appreciate your insight and your input. So thank you so much. Enjoy the rest yeah. of your time, and, and we will talk with you uh, very soon. Okay. Thank you guys for listening.
Thank you so much. Benaria O'Conjure, she is a licensed psychotherapist and founder of the Oklahoma Clinicians of Color in Oklahoma City. Here on the Bass News Radio Show on the Bass News Radio Network. We thank her. If you miss any part of any of our broadcasts, any of our interviews, any of the things that we're doing, you can go to our website, thebastionnewsradionetwork.com, thebastionnewsradionetwork.com. Uh, follow us on Pad Nation at Facebook, uh, Pad Nation 2 at Twitter, and, of course, uh, on any other outlets, including IBM TV and WCOM.com. going to be talking about uh, something that's very important. That is the George Floyd, the verdict in that case where the police officer, uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, was found guilty on all three counts that the prosecuting team uh, brought to the case in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Something is very very important. A lot of people are talking about we're going to try to get to it. We have a roundtable discussion with some distinguished guests. A couple on the line. We'll get to a couple others that are on the way. Um, one of them is Andy Piasek. He's a longtime activist and award-winning author whose most recent book is uh, Now in Motion. Appreciate Andy joining us. Um, and H. Michael Harvey is a publisher. He's an award-winning author and contributor for uh, Black College Nines, a, a, uh, a man who's written many books as it relates to race and others. And, and incidentally, we were going to get into some of the, the titles and topics of, of something related to uh, George Floyd. And, um, I, I, you know, Mr. Harvey has agreed to graciously to to get, bring it into more of a broad broader sense, at least for this evening. So, gentlemen, I appreciate you uh, coming in for this discussion this evening. Thanks for having me, L.A., and hello to Mr. Harvey. Good to hear um, from you. And, and, and thanks for coming on. Uh, we'll have uh, a couple of uh, chief of police that are going to come on from a, uh, uh, from a law enforcement perspective and uh, the you know, so I wanted to touch a lot of different areas, and we'll continue. I want to start with you, Mr. Harvey. Um, just a simple question. When you heard the verdict, were you surprised, and what was your reaction when you heard it? Um, well, first of all, uh, the verdict was a correct verdict, but although it was a correct verdict based upon the evidence and the uh, way in which the prosecution managed the case, I was, in fact, surprised. Uh, that the verdict came in guilty, guilty, guilty. Um, what was my immediate response? Um, a sigh of relief, but very quickly I girded my lawn again because I know that the the journey is not over, uh, that there's, um, there's more battle to be done. But I do applaud what took place the other day in Minneapolis. Andy, same question to you. Um, when you heard it, were you surprised? Um, guilty on all counts. Um, and if so, you know, what, what was your reaction um, when you heard the verdict? The whole chain of events seemed to be leading in that direction, but I was really concerned that 
somewhere, somehow, as we've seen so many times, some other kind of verdict might come down. So I was heartened that it happened the way it did and that he was found guilty on all counts. And I guess my first reaction was just to think back to last year and to think back to the protests that, as we talked about in other occasions when I've been on your show, have been the biggest outpouring into the streets in over 50 years in this country. And I think there's a direct connection between all those protests and all the work that millions of people have done, not just last year, but leading up to last year, going back many decades, and really seeing that what ended up happening earlier this week in Minneapolis is uh, directly related to all the heat that people put on the system um, from just not being able to take any more witnessing this man basically murdered, uh, you know, probably everybody in the world who has a TV or access to some kind of video has seen it. Um, so it was yeah. similar, I guess, to what your other guest said, heartened, but also now knowing that the only way that it came to be was because of everything that's led up to it and knowing that we have to keep on doing what we've been doing and do it better. You know, Mr. Harvey, I, 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 everybody's using the term justice in this case. Justice, mm-hmm. justice, justice. And I, I'm, well, I'll get back to me in a second, but I, it's hard to use the word justice because, mm-hmm. A, we don't know what the sentence will be uh, for this guy. And I wanted to say something else. And B, if you know, if he if if he gets if the judge gives him ten years, he he gets off for four for good behavior. Is that really justice? It may be a sentence, but is that justice? Maybe the family feels like that, and they and they have a right to feel whatever it wants. They lost their loved one. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, from a broader scale, as Andy mentioned, Mr. Piasek mentioned, you know, all this, the work that's been put in. And if this guy gets, you know, a, a minimal amount of years, is that really justice? Maybe accountability is a better term, but I don't know about justice. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, at the best that we can say for what happened this week is that is that that jury in Minnesota held Derek Chauvin accountable for his actions. Is it justice yet? No. Uh, Is it justice if he got 40 years? No. What would really be justice? I I think a charge of first-degree murder and a conviction for first-degree murder I I would would be inclined to say that that's what justice would look like in this situation. But the state, uh, afraid that they would not get a first-degree murder conviction, did not bring that charge, and they brought safe charges that they felt that they could actually get 12 people to agree that the verdict should be guilty on. You know, so I'm tend to agree with you. 
what we have seen this week is accountability. He was held accountable to some extent uh, for what he did. Uh, but justice, I mean, George Perry Floyd should be here today. And, and, the, and the bulk of us in this country, in this world, probably uh, would not even know his name or know that he existed. But that would be okay because that was his life. Um, you know, so I think uh, I agree with you. It's more accountability in a sense than justice. Uh, even if he gets the maximum, which we know he more than likely would not, he was a police officer, so presumably there is a good record uh, there. Uh, so he may not get uh, the maximum sentence, although the state did put the defense on notice during the uh, the trial uh, that they would be um, asking the court for an enhanced uh, sentencing uh, if he was found guilty. So uh, I, the state will go forth, and they will seek more than, uh, I, I think, 40 years is what it looks like, um, the, the total of what he could probably be um, sentenced to. But the state has indicated they they will seek to enhance that sentence, and so we don't know what the what the judge will will do. But even beyond the sentence, to me, he wasn't charged with um, malice murder. And just to look at the expression on his face and the, and the whole callous disregard for the human being whom he had placed his knee upon, to me, uh, I, I can infer uh, malice. From that, you don't have to have somebody to say, "I hate you and I'm going to kill you." So that's the last thing I'm going to do, in order to show that that was an intent to murder. I, I think that we could um, we could have made a case to infer that from his body language, uh, uh, kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. Right, right, and 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 Andy, I want you to respond to that because again, not first degree murder, and I, I don't, I I applaud. Listen, I, I have no issues with the prosecutors they they were informed they were structured they they laid it out basically telling the jurors you know i mean what do you see you don't you see what i see but having said that if they see what they saw why not first degree murder i mean second degree unintentional murder he got third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. The unintentional is what it what bothered me. That was very intentional. Not only he had his knee on the the neck, but he had this look of arrogance. Like I dare you guys, go ahead, film me. I don't care. So I, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm, maybe it's apples and oranges in terms of they got you know three out of three, but it. it you know, if it walks like a duck, it acts like a duck, and he is not a dog. Yes, I agree. I, I think it's hard to call it justice when this man has lost his life and his family has lost a brother or a son. Um, it's a victory, I guess, to the extent that so seldomly and perhaps never, I, I really was trying to think before we started the show, have we had a police officer held to account to this extent, I guess um, it will send some kind of a chill through police departments around the country, although we just have had several incidents more this very week while this whole thing was going on um, that speak to the fact that maybe 
there's a whole lot of folks out there who don't care what the lessons are, what the verdict was in this case. But I think um, it's a mixed bag. I think, yes, absolutely. It's not really justice in the fullest sense that it should have been, and maybe there was no way that it could ever be justice for a man who's lost his life for no reason other than this you know, racist police officer decided to snuff out his life. But um, it's it's uh, more than anything that I can remember in many years of paying attention and being a part of this work. So maybe that will be some kind of a precedent and send some kind of message along the way that we can build on. And, and, and let me just say this, because I know Chief... Uh, um Green is on the line. I'm going to get his thoughts. Uh, just put this out there to to the panel that, you know, it's it, people ask, you know, and again, this is not about us per se, because we're not unless I don't know, part of the, the Floyd family. So they have a right to feel and whatever. You know, this man is not coming back. This brother, this father, this uncle is not coming back to their family. There's this son. Um, so I, I, I'm not, I want to make sure I clarify that and say that before I say what I say. But if, if when people ask me, you know, uh, if, are you satisfied? Are you happy with this? And, and the answer, it, it, it's not maybe, you know, content in the sense that they, they got the man, but it's not justice. At the end of the day, George Floyd is not going to take his daughter to the Sweet 16. George Floyd is not going to be um, going to shoot hoops with his brothers or do anything or be at a barbecue or whatever. He's not coming back, as, as you said, Andy. Um, and at the and you also said, which is important, that the killings continue. Uh, the, the shooting to this young lady, the 16-year-old in, in Columbus. I mean, just moments after the verdict. So let's let's be clear. I mean, this is one case. This is one murder that you know a, a cop was convicted of. Um, but it's not something that people need to like. The president wants to to say, you know, um, it, it's you know, it's justice and it's in the right direction. It might be in the right direction, but let's be clear. It's not justice. You still have, how many knees are going on right now? How many cops have their knees on, on a, a, a black dude's or white, a, a, a black woman's neck, a uh, Hispanic or whatever right now as we speak? We don't know. So let's just keep it in perspective, I think. Um, I want to go to uh, Chief Virgil Green. Of course, he's a co-host of You and the Law that airs on the Bastion News Radio Network, 7 p.m. Eastern. Of course, the rebroadcast, you can go to the site and listen to there. And I know, Chief, you guys were just – you had another um, topic for that night, and then the verdict came down, and you had to shift gears as we do on radio and talk about it, as I actually done uh, in this, this show. But your thoughts on the verdict, what your thought was – and and I, I want you to touch on qualified immunity, which if we're talking about reform with policing, it starts right there. Of course, with the um, the fraternal uh, uh, group that stops everything, that seems to think, I guess, you could just be a 
a, a cop and just kill people and we'll back you. But qualified immunity is one of the, the worst things that's going on. It gives these cops a pass, the law enforcement a pass to just kind of be racist or do whatever they want and move forward. But your thoughts on the verdict and your thoughts on qualified immunity. Well, LA, uh, first of all, I think, you know, listening to one of your other uh, guests on the show, I think it comes down to uh, accountability. Um, you know, and, and, uh, first of all, does that, uh, what does that mean? I think when you have an officer who has been charged with the crimes that children were charged with, uh, do people really feel that that was, the charges that he was convicted of is that justice? Um, I, I don't. Justice would would have been for George Floyd to have been taken before the courts to let the courts decide if that was a a, a fraudulent twenty dollar bill. Uh, that that would have been justice. Uh, so at the verdict for me, from what I took away from it was more so holding this one officer accountable for his actions uh, and how he treated George Floyd because it was so overwhelming with the video uh, and everybody that testified that he just showed no regard for his, this man's life. And, and so uh, I just don't think there, there's some justice in it. I can't say totally that there's no justice, but I think, uh, LA is, is more about holding this one officer accountable, which will, in, in the fraternity, in, in the, the fraternity of police, you have a lot of police officers who condone what he did, but you also have a lot of police officers now who are feeling like, well, I can't go out and do my job. If this is going, if this happens to me, then I could be another chosen. Well, my re- response to that would be do your job and treat people fair, treat people equal, and don't abuse the authority that you have as a police officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and I think uh, I, I think too, you know, you, to your point, um, if you're worried about them, you know, uh, civilians or activists like on this broadcast coming after you, how about you not do it? How about you just don't put your knee on a man and kill him? How about that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, you what, if, if yeah. in any job, guys, we know if you're doing your job, what are you worried about? You look over your shoulder if yeah. you're doing your job? Uh, but real quick, uh, talk about qualified immunity in terms of how that shields these bad apples um, from being convicted. I mean, you know, uh, these politicians want to pass this bill and they fight over stupid stuff. It just pass it, right, and make it all these compromises. Uh, that's where it starts. It has to go away. It, it really is an issue. Yeah, it does. Well, let me say this, L.A., before I get on the topic of qualified immunity, if you don't mind. I think when we talk about justice, I think we need to realize uh, that we have to confront racism uh, just as we deal with the realization of justice. 
I think until we until the law enforcement uh, industry confronts the racism that exists within police officers, we're going to have uh, we're going to see the same similar things continue to happen. Uh, that's going to blind justice, but we've got to deal with the racism in order to ensure that people are treated equally in equity and that they receive the, the proper justice and let the court and a jury decide that person's justice and not the police officer on the side of the road. Um, so I, I just wanted to share that with you and your listeners, but you know, qualified immunity, uh, LA, I think it's something that really was not intended for uh, for police officers. It was uh, something that was really uh, it grants government officials uh, some type of discretionary, but some kind of way uh, police officers got lumped into this qualified immunity. And it's just been something that has been uh, carried on for, for for decades, and it's something that uh, our police unions have definitely utilized to prevent officers from being held accountable. Um, and you've got you've got so many states who are trying to pass. There's some states, not so many, but some states are trying to eliminate the qualified immunity. I know my home state of New Mexico, uh, they just banned qualified immunity, uh, as well as I believe New York, L.A., has uh, also done the same thing with qualified immunity. So I, I think we're going to see more states do it, but this goes back to the politics of it, L.A., where you have uh, a lot of states are controlled by Republicans, and Republicans are are very cozy with uh, fraternal order of police. And so that just goes against what they stand for. But instead of standing for what's right, that's going to hold these officers accountable. And, and also, whether it's civil or any other manner, that really needs to be uh, implemented and take the politics out of qualified immunity. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I got a comment in the chat room that I want to mention and 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 put it out to you guys to respond, uh, Mr. Harvey. He, uh, the person said, "How many times are we going to turn our cheeks?" The police have to have accountability, and and I mean, Mr. Harvey, you could think of we we mentioned George Floyd in this verdict, uh, but I mean. For every George Floyd, you have the Tamir Rice, the Eric Gardners, the Freddie Grays, the Breonna Taylors, the Sean Bells, the Michael Browns. I can go on and on and on. Um, and it's not just a racist white cop with racist white friends. You have blacks with the crab in the barrel. I got mine. You get yours. This is not my problem. They ain't have my problem. Hey, you're in a bad neighborhood. You're in a bad situation. Hey, you know, they buy into, he, like the, the police initially tried to say, well, you know, he had a medical issue, quote unquote, and that's what caused the death. We know, uh, thanks to, uh, Danella, uh, 
uh, Frazier that took the film and others that we know that it's not true. But again, turning the other cheek, this, this in the chat room, that is the comment, Mr. Harvey. What say you? Enough is enough. Uh, enough is, has been enough a, a, a long time ago. Um, somehow we have to put a stop to it. Either, either the system reforms itself, our community has to rise up and just put a stop to it. That's what I, that's what says I. Um, you know the the cheek's been turned too often, and um, you rattle off those names. But you know, in my seventy years. I've had three close encounters that could have gone that way, that I survived. And there are other uh, men and women uh, who have had close encounters that could have gone that way, but but for the grace of God, we're still here. So um, I I agree with the commenter. You know, enough is enough. Uh, It's time to not say turn the other cheek and wait for the next next, uh, young person uh, African-American to be killed by a cop, I mean, it's just time now to stop it, to band together. And one of the things that we, as, an, as a community of Africans living in America, we, we, have, to stop, um, we have to stop killing each other. Um, we have to stop fighting each other. We have to stop having violent disagreements with each other. We just got to come together mm. and, uh, and, 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 and clean up some of our own um, social problems that we have with, with one another. I got a follow-up with you, though, uh, Mr. Yeah. Harvey. Uh, and let me just ask him real quick, just a, a quick, if, if he could be brief, a follow-up. Um, you're old enough to, to, to uh, remember, you know, and, and, and most of, of course, uh, people on this panel, um, more specifically to you when you make these comments about you know, the civil rights and things of, of, of that nature, when you, you've seen so much, you've written about so much, whether it be HBCU and, and the Negro Leagues and baseball and everything, the plight of, of black people. Does this climate feel different in terms of hope, or is it the more things change, the more they say the same, in your opinion, if you can be brief? Mr. Harvey, um, I, I tell you honestly, I, I I don't feel anything in terms of uh, hopefulness uh, because of what happened this week. Um, you know, I'm I'm still skeptical. I'm still I still have anxiety. I still right. um, um, I, I'm, I'm still very cautious when I leave my home. I'm still a little apprehensive when I pass a cop car. Um, or when I pass a security guy in my local Publix or of, of Kroger, um, so so I don't know. I I can't say that uh, this feels differently. I do know that what happened in Georgia, in my home state, a few weeks ago, when the Georgia legislature um, uh, created this legislation to suppress the vote in the state, it it makes me feel mm-hmm. like I'm living in pre-voters' uh, rights, pre-civil rights, uh, makes me feel like I'm living in the 1940s, 1950 uh, southern United States of America. Um, and so I have, still have the same apprehension about the crime thing. Yeah. That, that's, that's a great point. I was, was going to go to some uh, solutions, and that's one of them. Uh, uh, 
uh, Chief Green, you were going to say? Well, you know, L.A., I think I want to go back to something that you talked about earlier about the charges. Why didn't he face first-degree murder charges, if I may? Uh, You know, every state has different statutes, and and under Minnesota, uh, their first-degree murder statute, one of the first elements is, is, was this premeditated? Uh, And also, you can also be charged with premeditated for, um, you know, kidnapping, uh, killing a police officer, uh, correctional officer, uh, domestic, uh, charges, those are things that meet the elements of first-degree murder. So I think when the prosecutor, they probably looked at it and said, could we really meet that, threat, that threshold of trying to say that this that this was premeditated? And, and I think a lot of people will sit there, we watched over nine minutes of this video, and how could you not say that it was like, premeditated would, would mean that this would have to be something that he thought of before he encountered George Floyd and not during the course of it. So I think that's why you saw Chief. the other charges. Um, but Chief. that's what I get from, yes. Uh, you know, I, I, I practiced law in Georgia for about 20 years, and, I, and mostly, I mean, all states that have a, have a first-degree murder charge, it's, it's always have the element of premeditation in it. And, I, and I'm not saying that they should have charged um, first-degree murder. I'm pleased with what they did and, the, and with the results that they gotten uh, from what they did. You know, but the question was posed, well, whether or not it, it was really justice. And to me, um, it would feel more like justice if, if he had been charged with that and faced as a consequence of um, his conviction, either the uh, death sentence or life imprisonment or life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. To to me, that would be more like justice. Now, to speak to premeditation, premeditation can be formed at any point in time in the act. So he he was he received a call where some younger officers had made a stop and they needed some assistance. And so he responds to the call. And so he gets there. Of course, he didn't come there saying, uh, whoever my partner's got, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill them today. I, I, I don't think he came there with that thought in mind. But as he got involved in this process, clearly in those nine minutes and 46 seconds, I think it was, um, you, you could see where his initial intent changed and, and, and possibly could have proved it from his demeanor, but the state was cautious. They knew that they had to walk away with convictions, um, and if they did not, that the public would be very upset. So they couched their bets on what are the charges that we most likely can get a conviction on, and they went forward with that. And I have no problem with that, and I am pleased with what they did. I just think that at the end of that process, had that been a first-degree murder charge and we got uh, the guilty verdicts that we received today, then I think I would say that um, that the wrong that was done to George Terry Floyd has been vindicated by this guy, not possibly either losing his life or spending the remainder of his life 
uh, inside of prison. But yeah, but and that, that's all I was saying. Yeah, and uh, just to, to follow up real quick, I want to go to Andy uh, Piasica. Um, you know, uh, Keith Ellis, a former congressman, of course, knows the politics of it, and he he guaranteed a conviction. So they had to get it. I get that. I think, um, and, and this is why we need universal um, decisions, if you will, in in from a federal uh, level or at least making sure the states have the same type of um, of statutes and, of course, with uh, policing in terms of the penalties, too. But that that is not happening. But you can make a case this guy, you're not in his mind, but you can make a case this guy when he got the call and got there and knew the guy was black, that he had every intent of harming this man with 18 different complaints from this officer that got swept under the rug by the Minneapolis police department. And I'm not giving a whole lot of credit to their, their chief of police with all due respect to you, chief green, because he, he, he went along with what the, what Chauvin and the other ones said, the other officer said that, you know, there was this issue of, uh, at this, this particular, uh, uh, you know, area, they arrested the guy. Oh, by the way, he has some medical is- issues. Some people said he was on drugs, this, that, and the other, and then he was gone. And then, of course, changed his his story. The chief was changed his uh, position after those videos came out, and then, of course, testified along with others uh, in that. I'm going to come back to that. I know Chief um, uh, Humphrey's on the line too, but yeah. I want to go back to Andy to the crest. I want to go back to the the question. Uh, Andy, how many times are we going to turn our cheeks? The police have has to have accountability. You and I talked about this on the show um, a, a week ago about how not being tired. You're an activist. Not being tired. Okay, George Floyd. There's a conviction there. Not giving up. Um, and my concern is. All of us on this this program that believe in justice and, and morality, but more importantly, from your standpoint as an activist, that we let this the police off the hook. We we even let, like you said, George uh, the Joe Biden, who was a man who wanted to see. Um, you know, black people being arrested for, for minor drugs and stuff. Who was a supporter of the crime bill, the Clinton crime bill back in the day? So don't we need to be make sure that we're not letting our foot off the pedal and we need to keep pushing forward, you know, notwithstanding uh, George Floyd and this conviction? Absolutely. Um, as I said earlier, I think that's the fundamental point here. I think much of what we're talking about in terms of the possibility of convicting police officers is a direct result of the work that we've talked about pretty much every time that I've been on your program. I think we also have to be very sober in assessing the situation that we're in. We're up against a very formidable foe, a very formidable system I mean, for me, I see white supremacy as directly linked to a highly destructive, really murderous economic system where you have 
massive, unbelievable wealth concentrated in the hands of literally a small number of people. And to some extent, the police's main role is to protect them from us, primarily from black people, but basically from anyone who has any inkling of building an alternative economic and social system, because that would call into question their ability to steal and rob us blind the way they do to accumulate their wealth. And it would bring up the possibility that we can build a society of our own that to hopefully a greater extent is built on the premise of justice and equality for everybody. As far as, and then also in addition to the fact that we're up against a very formidable foe, our forces unfortunately are small and relatively weak. Um, I'm not really sure I go along with the idea that, I mean, certainly there are some people who turn the other cheek and do so too often. I don't really think that that's the sentiment of the majority of people that I work with or that I deal with, even those who aren't necessarily activists, but who are fed up and angry and frustrated and attempting to find a way to do something to address some of these problems. What we lack are the kind of organizations that we need that can bring, well, we have them to some degree, but we really need to expand our efforts to bring new people in, all those millions of people who were out in the street last May and June and July and August, and all those people who voted for the first time to make sure we get the white supremacist president out of office, we need to have ways to keep them connected with organizations that will be out on a moment's notice, in force, anytime there's any kind of this atrocity committed against anyone, anywhere. Um, you know, and that requires new forces. It requires bringing people in and providing educational materials and providing training, which is time-consuming, but it's absolutely essential because we have not really touched on yet uh, something that we've talked about when I've been on your show previously. Not only are we up against law enforcement that is often completely unresponsive to the demands that we are making and just continuing to do business as usual, but we have a rapidly growing fascist menace in this country of white supremacists and Nazis and other people who showed what they really stand for on January 6th in Washington, D.C., and still none of the people in power who were a part of that have been called to account. It may happen. It doesn't look like there's really much momentum in Washington to make it happen. But um, so I think that I would say the vast majority of people that I am aware of, and I can I think even speak generally about the country as a whole, are not turning their other cheek. They're, you know, looking for ways to connect to making some kind of long-term change, short-term change. Um, and we just have to figure out ways to double down with our efforts so that, as I said, all those millions of people who are out, who finally said this is some kind of a tipping point, watching this guy for nine and a half minutes murdered, basically caught on videotape that this is too much we we every we have to i have 
new people were saying, I have to do something. I've never done anything. I've never participated in anything before, but this is too much. I mean, up where I live in Connecticut, there were high school students in towns that are 99.9% white who were out holding rallies last spring and last summer. What those people are doing now, I don't really know. But if we have organizations in place that we need, then they have some place that they can come to in order to continue the work so that we're not starting over at the beginning every time there's some kind of an atrocity like this committed. Mm. If you're just joining us, we're 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 exactly we're we're, we're talking about uh, the George Floyd verdict and aftermath, if you will, a roundtable discussion. Uh, Andy Piasek, longtime activist and award-winning author, uh, H. Uh, Michael Harvey, publisher and award-winning author and contributor for the Black College Nines, among other things. Uh, Chief uh, Virgil Green and Chief Keith Humphrey, who we're going to go to, uh, co-hosts of You and the Law, uh, that talks about these issues uh, from a, a chief's, a black chief's, uh, quite candidly, perspective uh, on the right side, if you will. You and a lot that airs on Tuesdays from 7 p.m. Eastern time uh, and the rebroadcast um, on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I, I want to bring in Chief uh, Keith Humphrey. Uh, appreciate you. Uh, we're talking, obviously, about the verdict. Uh, your reaction to it, we we brought up, uh, just to get you up to speed, uh, qualified immunity and how that's um, detrimental to seeing real justice happen in these cases. Uh, it's almost like I, I, I want to just kind of dumb it down, if you will. You know, if you if you uh, uh, you shooting a basketball at the, the free throw line and you you make one out of ten. Yeah, you may won, but you still you still have a low percentage, and it's a low percentage when for every George Floyd, Keith Humphrey, Chief Humphrey, you know you have a men that as I mentioned to Tamir Rice and the Michael Browns, the Eric Gardner's, Breonna Taylor, killed in her bed, Sean Bell. You can go on forever and ever. Uh, Dante Wright, uh, most recently situation in Columbus. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? And 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 in particular with that case in Columbus where um I can see where it's going where okay she had a knife, they're showing the knife and everything and I understand there's some some she she made she was trying to attack from the video uh someone else, but why not tase her? I d I don't know. We I'm not a you know, I'm not a law enforcement person, you know better. But at the end of the day, with the optics in this climate, Chief Humphrey, it doesn't feel right. Whether it's right from a policing standpoint is one thing. It doesn't feel right. It just happened 20 minutes after the George Floyd case. So it doesn't feel like even if she was, you had to use the deadly force with the knife and all that, it doesn't feel like it was the right thing to do. And, and law enforcement is on on notice with that, whether it's George Floyd with the knee or with this situation, this young lady, and they had to take her down. Yeah, so good evening, everybody. Um, first of all, I'm going to out to the city of, to the city of, uh, city of Columbus. Uh, just very tragic. Uh, you know, any police shooting is, is, is tragic. It's a, you know, tragic. 
but this was a, a young lady uh, that uh, was taken in her prime. Uh, but then also you have to think you have to also I would ask to pray for that officer because he uh, he's not he's not he's emotionally uh, in shock too. So you know with everything that's going on. But to go back to what was my 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 um, response to the verdict, uh, I was I was very proud of that of that jury, and, and let me tell you why they paid very close attention to the testimony of nearly fifty witnesses. Uh, that outlined uh, each step, and I think the police chief, the training staff, I think the the, the little girl that was there, I think the medical um, um, staff, they basically walked, you know, it wasn't just a video. They walked through every moment of the last nine minutes of Mr. Floyd's life and how uh, Chapin uh, contributed to that. Uh, basically, he had many opportunities, and they and they and they looked at that and they said, "You're absolutely right. Whether it was intentional or not, the fact of it is, he contributed to it. He did it. He's a 20-year veteran. He's had the proper training. Uh, they 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 put it all together and said, you know, you're going to be held accountable for it. Uh, yeah, LA, it, it is sad. 20 minutes. Uh, whether I can't remember 20 minutes before, or 20 minutes after the verdict was read, uh, you did have that shooting." Uh, and a lot of times people really don't understand. We don't do a good job in law enforcement uh, in explaining what our tactics are and why we use the tactics that we use. Uh, you know, why was the one officer there? Well, that's not uncommon when you get a call of a disturbance and you sit down the street, you know, park, even if you park away and you see something like that occurring, you have an obligation to go and try to solve it. Is it the best situation? No. Would you like two or three officers there? Absolutely. But these are fluid incidents that occur, and, and, this, and this officer felt that someone in his life was in debt and in danger based on the information that came in, based on what he saw. And, and people ask, well, why not Taser? Well, Taser's not the, not the solution all the time. Uh, there's a process in which Taser has to be effective. Uh, someone said it the other day, you've got to be within so many, so, such a certain distance. Uh, both of those uh, prongs that come out of the cartridge, they have to be able to connect. Uh, what if you hit someone else? You know, those prongs can hit one person that you're targeting and then hit someone else. Those are the things you have to look at. And so it comes down to the fact that he felt that that person was in imminent danger of being killed or hurt. He felt that's what he needed to do. Whether whether I agree or whether or not, that's what this officer felt he needed to do in that situation. And did Chief Humphrey, just to follow up, and I'm going to go to Chief Green and uh, Mr. Harvey after. Um, did Chief uh, Humphrey... Some people would say, "Yeah, the taser could have, the the could have hit a, a a bunch of people, but so could a bullet. Like if he missed, mm-hmm. right?" And mm-hmm. then the other part of it, yeah. Chief Humphrey, the, the other part of it is Chief Humphrey is that at the end of the day, as we've been talking about it, and again, I I love you guys. We we want you guys. You're doing it the right way. We want you to go home to your your families. I tell you that on and off the air. I tell you that on and off the air. But at the end of the day, with with that shooting in Columbus, if if you didn't have the bad apples, if you didn't have the white supremacists, in my opinion, in in the mix of you guys doing the right thing, you wouldn't have to explain it. You wouldn't have to explain it. It'd be a good shooting, and and you know, I mean, you so certainly the family 
and maybe the community yeah. will want to know what happened, but it wouldn't be a worldwide right. thing because be, and it's only a worldwide thing because of these but, Derek Chauvin's and all these other situations that continue to happen. Is my point. Because, but LA, this is what I've said just really quick. And you and I have talked about this. We've known each other for years. This is what I've said. <clears throat> these these things aren't new. The 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 excessive force uh, by police officers in communities of color or even in the nation is not new. People have said this. You know, I, I tell people you got to understand. Go back to the history of the the uh, why why did why were the Black Panthers established? You know, why why do you have certain groups that were established um, because it was for the protection against law enforcement. Now, do I believe, do I agree with the tactics that that they used, that the Panthers used in later years? Absolutely not. Because I don't I don't believe in violence against each other, you know, whether, you know police or, or citizens against, I don't believe in that. But you have to understand why, because there was an outcry from the black community that they felt their lives were in danger and they were being killed and they were being beaten. So the, the story of law enforcement, the, uh, the Chauvin's, that's not new to the that's not new to the African American community. That's not new at all. And so what makes it so what makes it so um, uh, you know what makes it a, a really you know uh, uh, interesting or what what made it magnif- you know magnified to this level is that now you've got proof. You know because I can tell you right now if there hadn't been any video with Shape with Chavin. There would have been questions, even with people out there, there would have been questions and it would have been said he did what he needed to do and this man was actively being aggressive. So now when you got the video, what you have is the communities of color saying, we've been telling you this is going on. And you all and, and right. you all haven't listened. The federal government hasn't listened. The states haven't listened. Police departments haven't listened. And you've tried to pacify us with these Band-Aid on gunshot wounds policies and trainings and things like this, but these keeps going, and you keep telling us what you think you, we want you, you want us to hear. So that's what's making people so upset. That's why even when there's a shooting that may appear to be justified, because I'm not, I'm not the jury, so I'm not going to say the shooting was justified or not. I, I understand why I believe the gentleman acted the way he does, and I'm, I'm hearing some people say they understand it. But what I'm saying is, we we got to do better, and and the people are tired of being tired, and and, and right. we got to stop telling people. We've got to stop trying to justify everything we do in L.A. and to listeners. When we're wrong in law enforcement, guess what? We got to admit we're wrong. With the, the more right. we do that and show that we're trying to improve and make things better, the the more receptive people will be when we have those those shootings that were leaked that were justified. So I I just want to say that. Yeah, and you're right, and I, that. But it goes to the optics again, and and to your co-host, uh, 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 Chief Green, um, Andy Piasek uh, mentioned white supremacists, and in my opinion, listen, you you could be an airline person, a LA bachelor radio person, whatever the case may be. You we don't know who we're dealing with sometimes. So if white supremacy. Um, is in everyday life. It could be my neighbor or whatever. They certainly are on the police force, right? So um, I think, Chief Green, the issue, one of the other issues of, of sort of, um, you know, policing yourselves and, and fixing the issues within amongst your ranks uh, of your your um, your agencies is white supremacy and, and this fraternal police order that just sticks up for – 
Hey, he stopped, but we're union, and we're going back to union no matter what. I don't care. He's knee, put his knee on him for nine and a half minutes. We're going back him. And even in the public, in, in, in terms of publicity, when we get out there and, and, and do the talking points, we're going to back them. So those two issues, to me, Chief Green, are, are, are some of the biggest for you in terms of uh, law enforcement. Yeah, you're absolutely correct, LA. But I, I want to go back to something that, that you uh, commented on earlier about the Minneapolis uh, police chief. Uh, and, I, and I don't think a lot of people realize that before he was a police chief, he actually he was a part of a group of officers who sued the Minneapolis Police Department back in 2007. Uh, and now he's the police chief. And I, and I, that it, things kind of came full circle uh, for him uh, because he actually challenged the, the, the agency in the city for their um, discriminatory practices amongst uh, black police officers. And for him to be the police chief really now says a lot. But I think when he took the stand, he uh, shared with the, uh, the jurors just how he felt as the the lead for that agency, but also as a black man, but also as a black man who has who faced discriminatory uh, actions from the agency that he is now representing. So I just want to kind of share mm. that with you and Alyssa. I don't think a lot of people realize that he actually uh, was a part of the civil lawsuit back in 2007 against the agency that he is, is leading now. Now, when we talk about the white supremacy, uh, you know, you go back to does it exist in law enforcement? Yes. Uh, that information has been put out by, by uh, the FBI. So it's not just something that people are just nearly willy making up. There is credible information that shows that you have white supremacy in every rank of law enforcement, in the ranks of military. And then when those who get out of military, some of those, come over into law enforcement, so they still bring that same baggage with them. Um, and it's something, just like with your children. I mean, you had the Fraternal Order Police invest well over a million dollars in just legal defense. Hmm. So you ask yourself, why would, first of all, what did, this, what did the million dollars come for his legal defense? But that's, that's what the fraternal order police, uh, that's one of the things that they do. And I think when there's more uh, public pressure and, and this is put more in the public spotlight with the FOP, that they are condoning so much bad behavior. I don't think, Keith, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I've ever seen the FOP come out and say, this officer was wrong. We're not going to back him. He's on his own. I don't think I've ever seen it. Now, it, it's possible, but I don't think I've seen it in, in, in my career as a police chief that the FOP has come out and was against a officer or multiple officers with the actions that they have uh, committed against a, a citizen. Well, what, what, I have, what, I have seen, what I have seen or heard is we have no comment until after everything occurred. Now, I have seen that. Uh, not a lot, but I have seen it before, but not, not, not on a regular basis. 
Yeah. Now, let me um, let me go to um, Mr. Harvey, of course. Who um, it, 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 and Mr. Harvey, you have a different perspective, a, a unique perspective, because not only um, you can talk about civil rights and having interviewed uh, those in that um, arena, but you also, you know, have talked to and interviewed and know personally the late great Hank Hank Aaron who had to deal with a lot of this. So you've been on all, all the different spectrums of that. We'll go to Andy in a sec. Um so I got someone who said uh the uh the case with um Nakia Bryan in, in, in Columbus, Ohio that what are you looking at? They, the person said, What are you looking at? She actually had a knife and the you know, they most people in the mainstream will uh show that yes, she had a knife, but I guess to make the point. Um and this person is trying to make it seem like, you know, she deserved to die. And it it goes back to the victim being the villain. George Floyd had drugs. Well she had a knife. And I and I'm not to to the Chiefs um to, to their protocol and what they do, I'm not, you know, kind of asking from that standpoint. But um, um, the person who wrote it uh, clearly is either white or pro-police or maybe just that that's uh, grabbing a barrel, that kind of thing, never experienced the, the, the kind of situations like you have and I have in terms of the apprehension of being police and your life on the line with police police stops and, and that feeling. But my, my I guess my question is to, uh, you, to, to for you to comment on that, that uh, for some reason, uh, if we're black, it, it, it had to be something. We did something. Just like um, the 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 white juror who said in the uh, Riley King case, if he had just stopped moving, just just stop moving, and they won't beat the hell out of you. They they won't beat the hell out of you if you just stop moving. So it's always the the victim being uh, put in a light of a well, a villain. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how that person made that comment. Well, you know, she did have a knife. And, of course, she had a knife. Of course. But the, the broader issue is it's always something that we're doing that we deserve to die on the street like yeah. animals. Well, I, I don't think that's the broader, the broader question. But first, okay. let me say this. Uh, my heart goes out to the, the family, to the mother of that young woman um, who lost her life. That's right. And it's, it's more than she had a knife. To me, where, where our community in this situation, until I know more, where I think our community should be focused on is that while we are quick to point the finger and say 20 minutes after the Chauvin verdict came in, uh, that was another police shooting. We should we should focus in on the fact that 20 minutes after this historical list had been taken off the shoulders of the collective black community, our queens, our young, fine women, 
mother That's of right. our future children were engaged in an all-out street brawl. We have to come to grips with that. And I think that's where we should focus. I'm not laying blame on the cops. I'm not blame, laying blame on the young woman for having a knife, and uh, it appears that she was getting ready to assault a, another person. I don't know what the squabble was about to begin with, but I think our community needs to focus on those things. Uh, for instance, here in Atlanta, Georgia today on I-85, a uh, young black woman cut off a black male, a younger black male. He took out his gun and shot her on the interstate. They caught him today. But, I mean, why? We, I mean, the, the roads, I don't know what the roads are in the areas where you live, but there are some very aggressive drivers here in, in Georgia. They don't respect other people on the roadway. And then if somebody has a problem with that, They'll pull a gun out and shoot you. So our community, we have to come to grips with what we're doing to each other. Because 20 minutes after that historic verdict that made everybody, every uh, uh, you know black adult of age in this country happy and relieved for momentarily, 20 minutes later, we had an all-out street brawl involving you know kids less than probably 20 years old. So to me, that's where the focus is. And I I don't want to get into, well, the the cop could have done something different, and maybe they could have. I don't want to get into she had a knife in her hand, and maybe she shouldn't have had a knife in her hand. Maybe she shouldn't have. I want to think, I think our focus would be how then can we stop having these kind of situations? Because now the cop didn't pull this person over. They came to uh, dispel a disturbance created by young people in our community. So, I mean, my heart goes out to that family. I'm not trying to downplay the loss. I'm I'm definitely not trying to um, praise or support the cop who fired the shot. But I think my focus is how can we solve the societal ills in our community that caused us to, be, to react violently towards one another in various situations. And and that's a that's a great point. And I I concur with that that ill, um, especially with with our young people that don't seem to get it um, and react. Um, I I would say uh, that conditions. Of, of 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 some of these cases, I don't know the, the the case there, like all of us saying in Columbus, but a lot of our conditions or our condition, both psychological and economical, uh, play a lot into what you don't know what you don't know. That's like babies having right. babies. Is my point, um, and it, it and I think that's 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 part of it. I think that we all that have been on this broadcast have been saying that, which brings me to. To you, Andy uh, Piasic, and and that's the conditions. Like um, we can try to fix uh, police brutality. You have two police chiefs on this line that that believe in that and doing the right thing. Um, we can fix a, a lot of things, but it does start with the economics, with the haves and have-nots. The, the 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 fact that you know black and brown communities uh, and and poor white communities. 
You look at Flint, Michigan, who got dirty water. Like in the United States of America, this is not, with all due respect, some of the third world countries. This is the United States of America, and they can't get water to drink. I mean, really. So, it, it, Andy, it does come down to the economics, the fact that those at the top, that 1%, controls everything. That's where we're going. We, we, that's where we are. Um, and so if you have situations in poor communities and over-policing, I know Chief Green and Humphrey talk about that, where they go and strong home, stronghold these, these poor communities and put light, lightness, if you will, or, or you know, not the concern in some of these, these richer communities, they want to, continue, they, they, to, to keep um, those poor or, or um, marginalized people from them, they're concerned about their wealth and they're taking this, and and they're concerned about the crime. So they send in these Derek Chauvin's to to keep law and order. So the economics, to, to your point, Andy, plays a lot into the broader scheme of everything. Uh, the heyday of American empire, when enough wealth was being passed around, even trickling down in little bits to the people at the bottom, that's long gone. It lasted for. 30 years or whatever, but ever since the 1970s, everything indicates that more and more wealth is being concentrated at the top. Everybody else who's below, say, the lowest 80% is having more difficult lives. And when you have people who are defeated, beaten down, observing all the kind of things that we've been talking about today where people can be murdered, people who look like them, can be murdered basically on television without any repercussions. Um, it fuels uh, incredible anger and um, frustration, the whole gamut. The other thing I think helps to some of this perspective is just the incredibly violent nature of American history. Whether we talk about absolute genocide of red people who were here and never did any harm to those who first came here until they realized that they had to take up arms to protect whatever little bit they had. On through slavery, you know, a slave trade that lasted hundreds of years and in which people who had made any effort to kind of resist or run away or stand up basically could be murdered and were murdered and made in big numbers without any repercussions for the people who were running the slave trade and basically the controllers of the economic system. And it was actually just this month in 1967 that Reverend King gave one of his most famous speeches at Riverside Church in uh, New York City. He called the United States the greatest purveyor of violence in the world at that time, and that has another thing that has only gotten to be more true today. So when you see the solution of the United States government to deal with Iraq or North Korea or Iran, which is to wage war and bring about the deaths of whatever number of hundreds of thousands of people in Iraq. Uh, whether we go back a little bit further and talk about Southeast Asia, where perhaps as many as 5 million people in Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia were murdered by the United States. I think the, the talk about doing away with guns or cutting back on guns or how can we deal with violence in this country when it comes from people in places of power 
is uh, ridiculous, and people know that it's shallow, and they see right through it. Look at the way you're reacting and dealing with us by shooting us and killing us, and you're coming around talking to us about we should not be violent. Now, having said that, I absolutely agree that people, and I'm speaking as a white person, uh, definitely somewhat of an outsider who does not have any of the kind of experiences that you all have talked about and described, but I think it's for black people in black communities to try to figure out with support from individuals in police, such as those who are on the show today. It's not for the federal government or the police as a whole to say, you have to stop being violent. Meanwhile, they're perhaps the most violent people of all. <clears throat> but it is something that we have to come to term with, along with all these other things. How are we ever going to have a situation in this country where there's less violence and there's less need for police when the living standards of the vast majority of people are declining and wealth is becoming mm. further concentrated at the top? If that continues, the logical conclusion is everything that we've talked about is going to get worse. People within these inner cities and everywhere else are going to become more exposed to parasitical criminals preying on them. Their lives are going to become more dangerous. There are going to be more and more violent situations every day. And um, people are going to be living on the streets in greater numbers than is already the case now. So, I mean, I think we have to address all these individual questions to some extent individually because otherwise you can get overwhelmed with all the different things that have to be dealt with. But I think we do need to keep in mind a systemic approach that we can patch up this thing over here and we can patch up this thing over here. But if we don't have an overall analysis and understanding and critique of a barbaric, murderous economic and social system that will continue to be exactly that on indefinitely into the future until we collectively deal with it, then we're going to keep dealing with all these issues that we've been talking about, plus many others, uh, in even greater numbers. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It, it can only get worse if we don't address some of the cancers um, within our communities, within ourselves. Uh, final question for all of you guys, and I appreciate all of you staying on as long as you have. I want to go to uh, Chief uh, Virgil Green first, is solutions. Solutions within, within your ranks, solutions from a political standpoint, is it because they're the ones that are going to pass the laws that you can't, you, you can't force or change a person's heart, but you can change policy. And policy can bring forth uh, voting, of course. Uh, I know Mr. Harvey in, in Georgia, the fight there, the changes there, but it's going on um, all across the country in a lot of these positions that are, are, t are being levied uh, through uh, statement, um, you know, state laws. But what are your thoughts, uh, Chief Green, and solutions to kind to um, right the shift and actually have real justice and bring forth hope because like myself and uh, Mr. Harvey, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very pessimistic, uh, even with the result and the verdict of George Floyd. Well, you know, Ellie, I think one of the things would be uh, voting. I think we, 
Yes. It's been mentioned on this program. It's been mentioned by your guests. Um, people really, the amount of energy, the amount of, of people that are protesting, those same individual, black, white, every race, need to make sure the state that they're in, that they participate in their local elections, whether it be on your city council, whether it be for your state representative or a state senator, uh, as well as on the national level. That's where we're going to see some real change implemented if we put people who have a desire to serve as an elected official and not somebody who wants to get in that position and it becomes self-serving. So you got to make sure that you are uh, electing the right person to represent you so they can be a voice to make changes within, again, whether it's on a city council level or whether it's on a, on a state level. Because what, like, I'm in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is predominantly uh, a Republican-run legislative vote in the House and in the Senate. So when you're trying to present, we have a black caucus who is very limited number, probably less than 10, and they're trying to bring about some criminal justice reform. It can't even make it out of the committee because of how the branch, how the legislative branches uh, is, uh, is made up when it's more dominant on the Republican side. So Again, that's to me, LA is where we need to really see people focus more on and participate and show that same energy and protesting like we've seen this past year. Uh, we've seen a record number of women become elected in, in, on, a, on a local level as well as the state level and even on the federal level. Uh, that's what's going to bring about change, and that's what's going to make law enforcement change their policies because law enforcement goes off of, off of when state statutes are implemented, how law enforcement is going to, to change the business of law enforcement because it is a business and we need to make sure that the business that we're, we need to get back to the protection and service. But the main thing, LA, is for people to take that energy and to put it into uh, being activists and being make sure that they give people to register to vote so we don't see what's happening in Georgia. Uh, uh, but those are some things that's going to, again, impact uh, law enforcement and how law enforcement goes about uh, the policies that they are implementing. Great point. Um, Chief Humphrey, you know, with the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.